Well, it's good to see you today. If you've got a Bible with you, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Surprise, surprise. Today we begin a uh, four-week series of messages on one of the most interesting chapters in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 14. I'm curious how many of you have ever heard a series of verse-by-verse messages on 1 Corinthians 14. Can I see your hands? Three, okay. There's, let me just say there's probably a reason for that, and uh, maybe it'll become more apparent as we, as we go on. Well, we have actually been teaching through this book of the Bible for a year now. Can you believe it? A few interludes here and there. But um, we do teaching like this because we believe it's the Lord's desire and his pleasure to speak to us primarily through this book, through his word. And like we sang earlier, we believe around here that the Bible, this book, is the Word of God, that it's God-breathed, divinely inspired, universally authoritative. This is it, the very Word of God. That would be a place to say amen, maybe, if you want to. The Word of God. So we do our best around here to make every effort to teach, teach in the Bible, from the Bible, every weekend. Otherwise, you're just getting the opinions of men, right? which is fallible and tainted by sin. And so we want to hear from God, and we want to hear from Him today. And so towards that end, I want to pray for us right now. Lord, Lord of heaven and earth, God of all creation, Word of God, speak to us today. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. It'll be a little different today. I'm going to teach through a passage of Scripture, and then at the end of our time together, I'm going to give you a word of prophecy from the Lord, I believe. 1 Corinthians was a letter written by Paul the Apostle to the body of believers who lived in a city called Corinth, right, which is in modern-day Greece. That church, we've come to understand, had lots of problems, and Paul wrote this letter to address and correct those problems, and the Holy Spirit saw fit to include that letter, 1 Corinthians, in the sacred writings of Scripture, in the the canon of the Bible. In this particular chapter, Paul addresses the subject of what should and should not happen when believers come together in worship like we're doing right now. So this chapter has great application for us, and as I knew this was coming, I've been praying prayers along these lines to the Lord. Lord, I don't want to just use 1 Corinthians 14 to defend and support what we already do. If you want to use your word to alter how new life worships you, if you want to use this passage of scripture to change how new life comes before you, how we serve you, how we worship you, then please do that. We need to be open to that, don't we? We can get in a rut, you know. And, 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 and rituals can start to, you know, calcify us over time. And I believe the Lord may indeed want to change how we worship and serve him through his word as we study it together. So let's be open to that. Let's be open to it. I hope you'll join me in praying that way. Today's going to be kind of an introduction. We're going to look at the first five verses of 1 Corinthians 14, and here is how they read. Pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. 
For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want all of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. And now you know why not many preachers have preached sermons on 1 Corinthians 14. First thing we notice is that Paul is honing in on two spiritual gifts, two gifts in particular that he wants to address And in fact, instructions regarding these two gifts make up most of this, the remainder of this chapter. What are the two gifts? Prophecy and tongues, the gift of tongues. Why those two? Well, apparently, these were were two of the most highly sought-after gifts in that church, in that congregation. Both of these gifts, prophecy and tongues, have a supernatural, miraculous component to them. And as a result, many church members who did not have those gifts wanted them. And some of those who did possess those gifts often would make a show of them during their worship gatherings, drawing attention to themselves and basically saying, look at me, look at what I can do. And so Paul, the wise apostle who speaks for God, wants to put these two gifts and their relative value into proper perspective. And so basically in this section, he says three things, pursue love, passionately desire spiritual gifts, and prioritize the gift of prophecy when you come together. So let's make sure we understand these things. First, pursue love. Would you say that with me? Pursue love, agape love. Now, I know there's a chapter break here, but there wasn't one when Paul wrote his letter. You know that, right? All the chapters and verses were inserted later. So do you remember how chapter 13 ended? where he said, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And then verse 1 of chapter 14, therefore, pursue love. Love's the greatest. Love's the best. Love will last forever. Love never ends. Love trumps all. So pursue love. Love is greater than faith. As great as faith is, love is greater than hope. Love is greater than all the spiritual gifts, even the miraculous ones. Therefore, pursue love. Seek love. Love people. Love people. We're going to see what that meant for the Corinthians. But let me ask, what would pursuing love mean for us? And beyond that, what would it mean for you? What would it mean for you and you and you and you and you to pursue love? Love. I put a little box there on your outline with that question. I want you to fill it in. What would pursuing love today mean for you? Would it mean speaking the truth to someone in love? Would it mean that? Would it mean going beyond just speaking words to actions of love? Would it mean getting into community with some some other believers and beginning to share life together? Would it mean forgiving someone for the offense they committed against you, the wrong that they did? What would pursuing love mean for you? Would it mean crossing some barriers to reach out to somebody? Would it mean limiting your freedom so you don't cause somebody else to stumble? Or if you already did cause someone else to stumble, owning that and asking them to forgive you. 
Would it mean starting to pray for that one person in your life who just frustrates you to no end? That person at work or in the neighborhood or at school? Would it mean doing what many are doing and starting a labor of love to someone who's needy and just coming alongside them and being the hands and feet of Jesus in their lives? What would it mean for you to pursue love? Take a moment and whatever the Spirit is saying to you right now, just write it in that box. There's probably a person in your life that he's calling you to love to a deeper degree. As you know, we just finished up a 28-day love dare, a challenge to love others as Christ has loved us. And um, my wife and I, was it last week, kind of went, went through all those 28 love dares together, just trying to see how we did at it. And it turns out that I ended up, for my part, doing a little bit over half of those 28 things. And as I thought about it, I, there were some lessons I learned from that month of doing the love dare. One is loving people is fun. You discovered that? I mean, it's just fun to bless people and and watch God use you as a channel of his grace and blessing in other people's lives. Second thing I discovered is that I need the power of the Holy Spirit to love people because it's not my default setting. Now, I love people that I love, but it's those other people, you know, that I need the power of the Holy Spirit to love those people the way Jesus wants them to be loved. And the third thing that struck me as I went through this, this month is that I am so glad that Jesus' record of loving people perfectly has been applied to me because I've repented of my sins and I believe the gospel of Christ. I've embraced the cross and Jesus not only took all my sins away, but he gave me his perfect record of righteousness, which includes loving people perfectly. And that was gifted to me. And to everyone who has embraced the cross of Christ and believed the gospel. Your sins have been forgiven and Christ's righteous record has been applied to you. And so God now sees you as he sees his own son. That's a glorious thing, isn't it? And then he gives us his Holy Spirit to begin to empower us and enable us to love like Jesus loves. So that over time our daily practice begins to reflect more and more our actual position in Christ. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. You know, I want to do a little commercial here for a little book called The Book Ends of the Christian Life by Jerry Bridges. It's a very short read. And he basically contends that the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit are the bookends of the Christian life that we need to lean on in our lives. It's a great read. My wife and I have been reading through it, and I highly recommend it to you, the bookends of the Christian life. So pursue love, he says. What would it mean for us as a collectively, as a congregation, to pursue love? Well, I believe, I've come to believe that one thing it means for us is that we are being called to love our neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ to truly love our neighbors with the gospel. I believe the Lord would have us to replant the gospel message in our community, starting with the west side of Gehanna here and then moving across the creek and then into other neighborhoods. You know, I, I thought we, we've loved our neighbors over the years with community service and children's programs and food and shelter and clothing and 
counseling, and we've invited our neighbors onto our property here through Food, Fun, and Fireworks, and our classic car show, and VBS, and all of those things have gained this church a lot of goodwill in this community, and now I believe it's time to capitalize on that and replant the gospel message in our community. The only message that can change someone's eternal destiny, the gospel. And I'm praying that here in the next month or so, that God will raise up some people in our congregation here, about 160 people who'd be willing to pair up and take a gospel pamphlet that we're putting together and go prayer walking through the neighborhoods around our church, praying for the families and just depositing that little gospel pamphlet on everybody's doorknob and then praying that God will prepare the hearts of our neighbors to receive the seed of his word. We hope to do that in the middle of March. You say there's going to be a foot of snow on the ground. So let's do it. Let's replant the gospel. Let's love our neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ and see what God does as we sow the seed out there. Well, more to come on that later. Pursue love, he says. Pursue it. Second thing he says is earnestly desire the spiritual gifts or passionately desire spiritual gifts. Apparently, Paul felt like he needed to say that to that church because he didn't want what he had written up to this point to be misunderstood. You see, based on what Paul had already written in chapters 12 and 13, it might have seemed to that church that Paul was downplaying the role and the importance of spiritual gifts to the point that maybe they had thought he didn't even want them to exercise their gifts. So he clarifies, no, no, no. I'm for spiritual gifts. I'm pro-spiritual gifts. Desire them. Minister your gifts to others with this caveat, do it in love. Minister your gifts to others to bless them, to enrich them, to build them up. Do it in love. Again, I want to ask, what would this mean for you? What would it mean for you to passionately desire spiritual gifts? Maybe it would mean discovering what your gifts are. Have you ever thought about that? What, what are the gifts that the Holy Spirit has deposited in you, has given to you that he expects you to develop and hone and use in ministry to other people. Maybe that's what it would mean for you to passionately desire spiritual gifts. Maybe it would mean once and for all rejecting the notion that ministry is only for the paid professionals. I hope you've rejected that notion, by the way. It's not biblical. Maybe it would mean being willing to take the initiative to get involved somewhere in ministry. Just jump in and serve the body of Christ. Maybe mentor and disciple students. Maybe help children understand the gospel. Maybe disciple men. Just get in the game. Maybe it would mean continuing to serve in a ministry, even though it's getting hard or difficult. Just hanging in there, being faithful week in, week out. Maybe it would mean attaching greater value to the gifts that others bring to the table. What would it mean for you to passionately desire spiritual gifts? There's, a, again, a little box there. Just write in there what the Spirit of God is saying to you. Pursue love. Passionately desire spiritual gifts. And third, and this is where the bulk of the chapter flows out of. This is... A key truth, prioritize prophecy when you come together. When the church gathers together, prioritize that gift. Let me read this 
passage again with that lens on. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. There's the priority of it. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. What is Paul doing here? Isn't he comparing and contrasting these two gifts, prophecy and tongues, and he's beginning to establish that one of them has more value than the other when the church comes together for worship. And which one is that? It's prophecy. Yeah. He's placing prophecy in a place of higher priority in the church assembly, when the church gathers together. Look, look at the contrasts here. He says, the one who speaks in tongues speaks to God. No one understands what he's saying. The one who prophesies speaks to people. The one who speaks in tongues utters mysteries in the spirit, unfathomable things. The person with the gift of prophecy speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation, which means comfort. The person who has the gift of tongues, when he exercises that gift, builds up himself. The person with the gift of prophecy builds up the church. And therefore, Paul states, tongues is of lesser benefit in the worship service, in the worship gathering, than the gift of prophecy. One category of spiritual gifts is speaking gifts. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 tells us that. The Holy Spirit has given some believers unique ability, a special ability to speak to people for him. As kind of a sidebar, let me just say that one recipe for frustration and unfruitfulness is to take someone who does not possess speaking gifts and put them in a role that requires them to speak. That's a recipe for frustration. It can be demoralizing to the person who's been put in that role, who's saying, that's not what I do. And it can be torturous for the listeners of said person. Thankfully, God distributes these speaking gifts to people in his body. Last weekend, you heard Jay O'Brien from Scarlet City Church up here bringing the word of God to us. I think you would agree with me. Here's a young man who God has given speaking gifts to. Easy to listen to, a joy, blessed as he brought the word to us. That's good for a church planter to have. I would say that those with speaking gifts must be careful to saturate themselves in the word of God so that their speaking reflects the truth of God and not just their own opinions and their own rantings. Saturated in the book. Well, two of the speaking gifts are these that Paul mentions here, prophecy and tongues. And the point he's making is that when the church gathers together, we should prioritize the ministry of prophecy over tongues because it is more loving to do so because ministering the gift of prophecy builds up the whole church while the exercise of the gift of tongues merely builds up the one who's speaking in tongues unless there's an interpretation given that then edifies the whole church. Now, all of this begs the question, doesn't it? What exactly is the gift of tongues? And what is the gift of prophecy? What are these gifts? Let me try and tackle that. And 
I'm going to give you my hopefully informed opinion on what these gifts are based on my study of the word, okay? And as I've said before, my understanding of this may not be complete. In fact, I'm certain that it's not complete because the perfect hasn't come yet. So we know in part and we still see in a mirror dimly. And so I know that. But here's my best shot based on what I've studied. The gift of tongues. By the way, it's a beautiful gift. Can I just say that? The Holy Spirit doesn't give junk gifts. The gift of tongues is the special ability given and enabled by the Holy Spirit to speak a language that's unknown to the speaker. That's my understanding of what the gift of tongues is. Special ability, supernaturally given to someone to speak a language to somebody that the speaker never learned, never went to school. Just, it's just given to them. Gift of prophecy, I believe, is the special ability given and enabled by the Holy Spirit. Are these on your outline? Okay. To receive communication directly from God and then speak those messages to people in an intelligible way so that they get it, they understand it. Now, I've come to believe that both of these gifts have multiple expressions. And you just stay with me on this, okay? When you examine the whole of Scripture's teachings, all of Scripture's teachings on these gifts, you see more than one expression of each of them. The gift of tongues, for example. When you see the gift of tongues being exercised in the early part of the book of Acts, it's obvious that it is a known human language that is foreign to the speaker, but easily comprehended by the person who knows that language. Let me read Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 5 for you. The day of Pentecost. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So, A bunch of people had descended on Jerusalem for the festival there. And at this sound, there had been a sound, a a rushing mighty wind. A multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Aren't these local people here? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So the apostles got up on that day and they were speaking the wonders of God and the glories of the gospel and they were apparently speaking in languages that they didn't know and hadn't learned but people in the crowd who were natives of those places understood these languages and they were amazed by it. This is often referred to as the missionary expression of the gift of tongues. Believers given a special ability to speak a foreign language they never learned and didn't understand themselves in order to communicate the wonders of God and the glories of the gospel to people who understand that language. And you need to know there are reports of this happening all over the globe, even today. Missionaries finding themselves in situations and in places with tribes where they don't know the language and God miraculously giving them the ability to speak the message of the cross in the language that the native people understand. This still happens. You can research it yourself. So that's the missionary expression of the gift of tongues. But when you come to 1 Corinthians, you see what appears to be a different expression, a second kind of of tongues, what some have called the devotional expression of this gift. Certain believers are given a special 
ability to speak an unknown language as an aid to their devotional life of prayer and praising God. Some have called it an angelic language, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. What language do they speak in heaven? English? Not likely. Heaven has its own language. Some believers have been given a special prayer language to speak in prayer to God. It's not really for other people. It's, for, it's not really for the benefit of others. It's, it edifies them. It's for their communion with God. That's what he says in chapter 14, verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, like that missionary expression of the gift, but to God. No one understands him. He utters mysteries in the spirit. In verse 14 and 15, Paul says, I pray in a tongue and I praise in a tongue. So this appears to be different from the missionary expression, which was given to benefit other people. This one is a special gift given to some believers to aid in their communion with God. I think it's this expression that Paul limits so much in the worship gathering because it doesn't do much to benefit anybody else other than the person who is speaking or praying or praising in tongues. That's why it's often referred to as a private Prayer language. Then we also see in 1 Corinthians 14 a third expression of this gift. You could call it the revelatory expression, if you like big words. This is when a believer is given a message from God for a congregation, and then he speaks that message in an unknown tongue, and then it is interpreted so that everybody else can benefit from it. From it. It's interpreted in the language of the congregation. Chapter 14 and verse 9 Paul wrote, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anybody know what is said? You'll be speaking into the air. Verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. If it's done in a a setting like this. So this expression appears to be different from the other two. Now, again, this is my interpretation, okay? Okay that there are at least three expressions of the gift of tongues. Again, I would tell you, I could be wrong on this, but if I am, I'm in pretty good company of Bible scholars who believe the same way. The gift of tongues, I'll say it again, is a beautiful gift. Some of us who are brought up in certain environments and church came to view this negatively, like this is a bad thing, it's demonic, it's devilish, people going crazy speaking in tongues. I want you to know that The gift of tongues given by the Holy Spirit to believers is a beautiful gift. I have friends and family members who believe they have received the gift of tongues. And they say, Steve, it's it's a beautiful thing. I, I draw closer to God through this. You say, well, it can be abused. Well, sure, all the spiritual gifts can be abused when we operate in the flesh. All of them can. The Holy Spirit doesn't give junk gifts. Now, you still with me? A few of you are, all right. I also believe that the gift of prophecy has multiple expressions, at least two. I'd like to share them with you. The first I've heard called objective prophecy. This is when a person receives words of truth from God that are universally authoritative, God-breathed, and completely inerrant, and they then speak them authoritative for God. Okay? This is 
Thus saith the Lord. Now, I believe that only the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles were prophets in this sense of the word. I've heard them called uppercase prophets, prophets with a capital P. And I don't believe there are any more of them. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that they were foundational in the sense that God's revelation came to his people through the apostles and prophets, and only through them they spoke for God, men wrote down what they said, and those writings make up our scriptures, our Bible. These prophets spoke with power and passion because they knew they had heard the very words of God. I'm talking about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Matthew, and John, and Paul. Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles who heard from God, spoke, thus saith the Lord, their, their, their speeches were written down and are included in our Bible today. I think that anybody today who claims to be on par with those guys is sadly mistaken and does not understand the uniqueness of this expression of the gift of prophecy and should basically be ignored or pitied. The objective gift of prophecy. Another expression of this gift is newer to me. I've studied it a lot and I now believe it exists and I've heard it called subjective prophecy. Subjective. Objective and now subjective. This is when someone believes that God has brought something to their mind and it's for somebody else and they they then share it with others, believing it to be from God. This is not, thus saith the Lord. This is not speaking in first person. I, the Lord, declare this to, to you. This is, I sense that the Lord might be saying this. Subjective. This is when you're in your small group, for example, and you're, you're praying together and you're praying over things and someone, you know, you finish praying and someone says, you know, I sense that the Lord would have us in this group be more outward focused and not so ingrown. I, I sense he would want us to maybe begin ministering to the widows and widowers in our church. See the difference? Thus saith the Lord. Versus, since the Lord is saying this to us, I'm indebted to uh, some very smart men, uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem, Dr. D.A. Carson, helpful to me in this sense. This, this expression of prophecy is sometimes called congregational prophecy. This is lowercase prophecy with a small p. It's not on par with Scripture, not to be taken as such. When that person in your small group says that, you don't you know, write it down and include it in the Bible. This is localized, personalized, customized encouragement or correction or challenge from the Lord to an individual or to a group of people. The Bible declares that this exists and that when prophecies like this are given, they should be judged, they should be sifted, it says, and they should always be subordinated to the Bible. So if someone comes to you and says, brother, sister, I got a word of prophecy for you. You're supposed to leave your wife and go Hook up with that young chick. You're supposed to take all your money and invest it in this Ponzi scheme. You're supposed to take all your spouse's earnings and go to Las Vegas, and God's going to make you rich there. 
you look at that person and you say, I have a higher authority than your supposed word of prophecy. That word comes under, is subordinate to the word of God, and the word of God tells me what decisions are pleasing to him in those matters. And so I'm going to ignore what you're telling me, and I'm going to obey the word of God. So don't go off half-cocked after this sermon and say, you know, Pastor Steve said we can get all, give all these words of prophecies and say all these things. I'm telling you, I'm going to deny it, okay? It's subordinate to the Bible, to objective prophecy. This is so important to understand. The content of these kinds of prophecies are not on par with Scripture. They can even be misreported. And so the New Testament says, sift them, judge them. There are also beautiful words of prophecy. Beautiful words. Uplifting, edifying, enriching, guiding, encouraging, enlightening, insightful words of prophecy. Messages custom designed by the Holy Spirit and given to someone to give to somebody else or to a group of people. I've had words of prophecy spoken over me on several occasions. Especially since I've been in this role several times. And I value them. And they're in line with scripture. There's one in particular spoken to me a couple years ago by a gal you may have heard of. Her name is Heather Mercer. She was one of the vibrant young Christian missionaries who was imprisoned in Afghanistan a number of years ago. And then she was released. She was on TV and all that and gave great witness and testimony to Christ. And she started a ministry called Global Hope. I happened to be in a meeting where she was a couple years ago. I actually went to that meeting praying that God would give me something along these lines because I was beginning to sense God moving me in a direction to direct us into being more of a gospel-centered church, and I needed confirmation from him, and I ended up getting to pray with Heather, and she spoke some words, prophetic words into my life that I cherish to this day. It's like, thank you. This is what I needed to hear And I wrote them down in my journal, and I still refer to them from time to time. This can be a beautiful thing. I thank God for the gift of prophecy. We don't have time right now to say everything that needs to be said about this gift. Some of you are probably wondering if what I'm doing right now, explaining Scripture, does that qualify as the gift of prophecy? Or is that teaching? Are those different? How are they different? We'll get into that later. We do know that we're told in the Bible to not despise prophecies, 1 Thessalonians 5.20, and then in the very next verse to test prophecies and hold on to those that are good. Later in this chapter, Paul's going to tell us that congregational prophecies should be sifted and judged by others in the congregation because they can be misreported. Or the one giving the prophecy can, can add his or her own interpretation to it. That's what happened to Paul in Acts 21 where someone gave him a word of prophecy and said, Paul, if you continue on to Jerusalem, persecution awaits you there. So don't go. And he ignored the so don't go part. And when he got to Jerusalem, sure enough, the prophecy was correct. He faced massive persecution there. But he believed that God was leading him to suffer for the name of Christ in Jerusalem for a grand purpose of God that that prophet had just added their own interpretation. And so prophecies must be sifted. They must be judged. 
So let's just admit that at this point, we all have lots more to learn about this amazing gift of prophecy. Let me sum up these first five verses of 1 Corinthians 14. Paul is basically saying this to the Corinthians. When you gather together for worship, pursue love first and foremost. This means that when you all come together, I want you to prioritize the ministry of those gifts that build up the whole body of Christ. I'm talking about the speaking gifts that give people messages from God that they can understand, especially the gift of prophecy. Like me, you probably have even more questions. Well, then who can prophesy? Can prophecies be wrong? Who is qualified to judge prophecies? Where is the place of speaking in tongues if it's not to be prioritized in the worship gathering? Does the gift of tongues have any benefit? Lots of questions, lots of questions. Be patient. We will get to all of them in time. But today, let me just finish with something that I I think is appropriate based on what we talked about today, and that is the gift of prophecy. I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, you know, if we're supposed to prioritize prophecy in the gathering, and would you give me a word of prophecy for New Life Church? And I believe he did. Two two clear things in my heart and mind that I want to share with you. I sense the Lord saying to New Life Church something about our openness to the miraculous. You know, this church, when we started out, we had a very strict cessationist viewpoint about the miraculous gifts. About 11 or 12 years ago, we shifted our position to a position we heard called open but cautious. Now, the way that has fleshed out here over the last 11 years is like this. Open but cautious! That's how it's fleshed out here, in all honesty. Grudgingly open a little bit, but really cautious. Because we don't want to be known as fanatics, and we don't want things to get out of control. I sense the Lord wanting to move us to open the cautious. Open. Open to what God might want to do that might be outside the box of what we've always thought. And beyond that, I've sensed the Lord saying that he would love to entrust us with a greater measure of spiritual power in this congregation and i'm for that aren't you more people healed when we pray for healings more power to say yes to god and no to sin more boldness when we share you know to share our faith with our friends and neighbors more of his spiritual power more of us exercising our spiritual gifts in the power of the holy spirit that wasn't all. I believe he longs to entrust us with more spiritual power if we will cast down our idols. Those functional substitute saviors, things in our lives and our hearts that we've counted more precious, we've placed above God, idols. Topple our idols. And see if God doesn't flood us with his spiritual power 
to glorify his name. So Lord, if this is indeed from you, a word for this body of believers, then would you now lodge it deeply in everyone's heart and mine as well? Would you reveal to us the idols in our hearts that we have set up, that we cherish, that we love above you? And would you give us the grace and strength to topple those idols? And then would you fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit that we might speak the word of God with boldness, that our prayers for healing might be answered, that you would entrust us with a greater measure of your spiritual power for your own glory, not for ours. That we, your people, might once again be in awe of you. And I ask this in your precious name. Amen. Amen.